Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. On this episode, I talk to Ezra Edelman, the director of the ESPN documentary, O.J. Made in America. Ezra looks at the O.J. Simpson case against the backdrop of race relations in Los Angeles. The sweeping history is presented in five parts, spanning seven and a half hours. You really need to sort of live emotionally and, and with O.J. for all those hours, and i.e. years of his life, to get a better sense of who he was, because I think that, especially generationally, he's just been reduced to this, oh, isn't he that football player who was accused of killing his wife? Whether it's O.J. or, or Mark Furman, it's like, yeah, here's someone who is that everyone has just decided already that this is what, who they are, and there's a one-line summation, caption. And it's like, yeah, no, it's, it's always a little bit more complicated than that. Ezra grew up in Washington, D.C., in a family known for activism. His mother, Marion Wright Edelman, has deep roots in the civil rights movement and is the founder and president of the Children's Defense Fund. His father, Peter Edelman, worked for Senator Robert Kennedy and later resigned from the Clinton administration in protest over welfare reform. There's values that are, you know, sort of, if you grow up in my house, that get instilled in you um, pretty, you know, quickly and deeply. And so that I had parents who sort of worked as activists in some form, you know, going back to the 60s. And I have two older brothers who sort of chose similar paths, you know, whether it's just sort of family dynamics, you know, in terms of I'm the youngest child and I was allowed, I was given a little more, you know, a little longer leash and I was allowed to sort of explore what I was interested in um, a little bit more freely and didn't have that same pressure. You know, where my family informed me, it was just trying to be, trying to find things within the stories I was telling, if not in the stories themselves that I chose to tell, that had some greater import. In 1994, when O.J. Simpson was accused of murdering his ex-wife Nicole and her friend Ron Goldman, Ezra was a student at Yale. He told me he didn't pay close attention to the case. After graduating from school, he went on to direct sports documentaries for HBO and ESPN. Sports has always been a framework even if within that genre, I've sort of always tried to tell stories that were not about what was going on on the field or on the court. ESPN executive Connor Schell approached Ezra with the idea for the O.J. Simpson story. It was originally planned as five hours and grew to seven and a half. Ezra now lives in Los Angeles, where I reached him on Skype. When I first heard about this film, my first reaction was, that's the last story I want to revisit. You and me both. <laughs> so what drew you into it? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, to, to sort of pick up what you're saying, I mean, what, what drew me into it actually was the, the canvas that was being provided. You know, with, upon hearing that OJ was a subject that they wanted to tackle, they set it concurrent to, with the idea that they wanted to do a five-hour film about OJ. And frankly... As strange as this sounds, I was much more interested in just the five-hour film, just the, the, former, the formal challenge of telling a story from beginning to end that, that, was, that was that long. And then what did you do to get yourself in the headspace of the OJ case? Despite me saying I didn't focus that much on the trial, I nevertheless lived through it and understood what it was. And I've understood the amount that people had picked over this case and all these characters and I, and I understood the sort of the discussion surrounding it. So I didn't really, 
understand what I could possibly add to that conversation. The five hours part of it, what it made me realize, though, was the things that I am interested in. I'm, I was a history major in college. I'm sort of interested in, you know, I probably could have been an African-American studies major. I could have been an American studies major. And when I sort of started thinking more about what this OJ story is combined with the canvas that was being offered, it was, oh, I don't have to focus in on those two years in 1994 and 95. Those are sort of incidental to me. I can actually tell a story that explains what happened in 1994 and 95 and actually and offer context and really examine this history of a city in Los Angeles, the LAPD, the black community here, um, as well as sort of I, what I did sort of get. And because of my background in sports, I knew enough about OJ and I, and I kind of realized that, that he as a character and even, a, and even an appreciation of him as an athlete had been underexplored, especially in light of the events of 94 and 95. And so that's what sort of got me going, just on a sort of almost a pure um, historical interest level of, oh, this is a world that I'm interested in spending time in, even if I'm not particularly interested in the question of who did, who did it or did he do it or what, you know, that, that was never a driving force. Given that this story has been raked over in so many different ways, I wonder if you can highlight things that came out in in your telling of the story that you don't think were really on the record before. Uh, almost everything on the in the film was on the record in some form, you know. And I think sort of a, the time that was afforded, or even just sort of how I prepared to do this, it's you know, even if you there were details that I would read in places, even if they hadn't been sort of focused on in any grand way, that informed how I wanted to tell the story. Um, I mean, I mean, something as simple as, and this isn't revelatory, but, oh, OJ's dad's gay. But I read that in one line in a book that I didn't realize. And so, okay, that I didn't uncover it. I just talked about it. That came as news to me, having not been immersed in those books before. Right. And it was news to me. And frankly, even if you sort of take the sort of, I could give you four books, I said, I would say, read these. And that would part of the book that I read it in, it would be the fourth book I would give you. And it would be one line in the book. And so th it's not something that had been deeply explored. But if you're interested in examining someone's life and you're interested in sort of figure out who somebody is, uh, I'm like, well, that seems like a pretty fundamental detail. Here is OJ's childhood friend, Joe Bell, being interviewed by Ezra. Back in our day, that was the worst thing in the world that you could ever think about an African-American man being homosexual. Did you ever talk to OJ about this? No. Never? Mm -mm. I felt like that issue was enough for him to deal with himself. There is an incredible connecting of dots that happen uh, in this film. And when I watched it, I, I kind of recognized that I had taken in two different stories over the years. I'd taken in the story of OJ and then separately, I had taken in a story about the LAPD and uh, and the larger context of police brutality in the U.S. And while I understood some connecting points between those two stories, uh, your film really weaves them together tightly. You know, this gets back to the origins of of why one would want to do the story, why what why one wouldn't want to do the story. You know, if you if you look at, if you right now are like sort of IMDb'd or you sort of looked up the films or the television things that have been done about OJ in the last 20 years, I mean, primarily what you're going to find is these are, you know, feature length treatments, you know, an hour, a half to hour and 45 minutes at most. 
and they're all obviously focused on those two years. And from a there's like there's actually and they're interested in again the question of what happened that night, for instance, or maybe they're interested in the trial, but the explanation in terms of the in terms of the context is at best you see an image of Rodney King getting beaten in 1991, and that sort of informs what happened during the trial. Similar to OJ, all you see is a shot of him playing free, running down the field, and he's a former football star. And there's just so much more when you think about the LAPD part of it and the Los Angeles part of it, in terms of this sort of overwhelming tension that had built up, not just in those two years, but in those 40 years. And that there had been, you know, obviously people do know about the Watts riots, but when you realize it's like, okay, so this culminated, you know, in this explosion in 1965, but it's not as if the issue went away. And so there's these, you know, this steady tension that was building and building and building after that, that would sort of explode every once in a while with these, these, these smaller incidents. And when you would talk to people who live, I'm in Los Angeles right now, when you talk to people who are out here, these, there's these different moments over the years that would continually pop up. And you realize that there is a much greater foundation to this tension and this anger that built up than just sort of, oh, one guy who was videotaped having this happen to him three years before the OJ trial and the resulting riots. Those riots in 92 were not just a result of what happened on March 3rd, 1991 with Rodney King. And once you sort of got into that, I'm going, oh, this is a much deeper thing than any of us sort of really understood. These are issues that people have lived with for their entire lives generationally and passed them on down. And so I think that informs a skepticism of the criminal justice system in general and a skepticism and a distrust in the LAPD specifically. In the film, there's an archive clip of Maxine Waters when she was a member of the California State Assembly. On January 3rd, 1979, two members of the Los Angeles Police Department shot and killed Eula Love at her home in a dispute over a $22.09 utility bill. She died on her front lawn before the eyes of her own children. I asked Ezra how he selected what history to include. Once you start talking to um, people out here, be it civil rights attorneys, activists, clergy, there, are the, there were these things that continually came up as these flashpoints. You'll love in 1979 being one of them. The, the raid on 39th and Dalton in 1988 where police sort of tore up a whole apartment building in search of drugs and found very little. And so they essentially just ruined people's homes um, without warning or, you know, or notice. Um, and then the Latasha Harlan's thing, it was one of these things because of the videotape nature of the Rodney King. And I experienced this myself as a teenager in D.C. That was even, a, that was such a shocking thing to see. And there was such an emphasis on what happened with this guy at the hands of the police that the, the idea that 13 days later, there was a young girl who was gunned down by a, a Korean convenience store owner in South Central that was something that got lost, at least to people like me on the East Coast and probably to a lot of people. And, you know, it, it really also informed a lot of the tension of what happened with the riots when you talked about the black Korean tension here in Los Angeles. And that was something, as soon as you learn this, you're like, oh, no, it wasn't just Rodney King gets beaten. People are really upset that the cops didn't get convicted. But there was another piece of that in terms of the criminal justice component, which was, you know, people just lived through the idea that a girl had lost her life and the person responsible for that serving their jail time. So those two sort of twin pillars of it's, it's, yeah, it's the LAPD, but it's also the criminal justice system in terms of unfairness, really informed 
what happened, you know, with the riots on April 29th, 92. It was those two events combined. And so even when I understood that, like, oh, I had been missing a part of this, this is pretty fundamental to telling this story, that's when I sort of said, okay, here are the moments that need to be um, included um, in this story to help explain what had been happening over the course of these decades. We'll be back in a minute to talk more with Ezra Edelman about how he interviewed the key players in the film. But first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is sponsored by SundanceNow.club. Discover hundreds of documentary films selected by head curator Tom Powers. Now you can watch The Trials of Muhammad Ali by Oscar-nominated director Bill Siegel. The film looks at Ali's toughest battle when he was sentenced to prison for refusing military service in Vietnam. You can watch SundanceNow.club on your TV, computer, or mobile device. Go to DocClub.com to sign up for a free trial. I want to ask you what it was like reaching out to the key participants in this film. These are people who have been interviewed over and over. Probably some of them have written their own books or had their own uh, TV shows. Everyone's written their own books. <laughs> so what was their openness or lack of it when you came calling to do a fresh interview? It's safe to say that not a lot of people who were involved with the trial itself were that interested in talking to us. Um, there was, you know, sort of a, there's really, I don't know what the proper metaphor is, but, you know, you basically are calling people up who have built a large wall around them or in front of them to block out people who want to do interviews with them. And, and because of the way that the trial was covered so um, feverishly, you know, and competitively, if not and maniacally during and sensationally during the trial, you know, there's this sense that people are like, okay, enough already. They've either tried to bury it and forget about it, um, or they just sort of end up in a place where they know they have to play defense because there's this fascination, and every year on this anniversary of these things, people call them up and want to do stories. And so, you know, when we called them up or wrote them letters, there really was a skepticism, if not an you know, outright you know, silence on the other end because they, you know, what am I going to offer or ask them or do or how am I going to be different from anyone else? And so there was really, with a lot of people, this hurdle that needed to be, you know, gotten over, which was, can you just listen to what we're doing? We're not focusing on the trial and the murder. We're not relitigating the case. You know, we really are trying to explain it all. And we have this canvas. And, you know, we, I want to sort of talk about the history. I want to talk about everything that went into it. And, this isn't like the things that had been done before. This isn't like the interviews. And I think by and large, if we got a fair hearing with people where we could sit in front of them and explain what our intent was and what we were trying to do and have them listen to the fact that we are pretty sober minded and we don't have, we didn't have an agenda. Um, people sort of came around, but it took a lot of work. I mean, I'll just use one example. Gil Garcetti is the district attorney. It took me, you know, months just to get to him. And I, I got his email through a family friend randomly and he wrote me back and said, look, I'm not doing an interview, period. If you want to come and chat with me off the record the next time you're in L.A., you know, feel free, which I did. And I spent a lovely couple hours at his house. And it was really frustrating because it was just like this is a conversation that we're just having casually. And everything that's coming out of your mouth is exactly the kind of stuff I want to include in this documentary. It's not like a 60 Minutes interview. I'm not trying to grill you. I just want your recollections. 
And he hadn't done an interview in over 15 years. And he sort of listened to me and said, okay, thanks. And he's like, I still don't want to do this. And I left. And there was another meeting about that in the same way. And he still was reluctant. And finally, in fact, it was his, his son, who was the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, who convinced him. It helped that it, Eric knows uh, my older brother a little bit. And so I think he told Gil, like, two things. It's time. I think enough time has passed where you can tell your story and people haven't listened to you. And I actually think you might be able to trust him. Like, I know his brother a little bit. I, he's a good dude. You know, maybe it's okay. And once you get sort of, this is specifically on the prosecution front, but once you get somebody to say yes, then everything gets easier. On the defense side, Johnny Cochran died in 2005. But Ezra interviews other members of the defense team, including the black attorney Carl Douglas. Using the concept of a conspiracy historically in Los Angeles will resonate with diverse jurors who know about this history. You had to have someone to blame. How much do you think race played a part in your interviews? Like When I watched that Carl Douglas interview, I can't help but think that he might have given a different interview to a white interviewer. Uh, I, I think you're probably correct. I think there's a question that's impossible to answer about how you get people to open up and how you make them comfortable uh, with you. Uh, I think that it's funny you asked about my parents and my mother specifically. I sort of go through the world with pride of who my mom is, but I also sort of do my thing on my own. I, I'm pretty hellbent. I'm trying to sort of do everything myself. Uh, that's just the way I am for good or for ill. But, you know, in a case of someone like Carl, you walk into his office, he has a history of as a civil rights attorney. And he knows who my mom is and he's, you know, and she's someone he admires greatly. And so that, that affords me an entree to him as, as a character that maybe others wouldn't have. And so it's not just being comfortable with someone who also is black. I mean, that helps in terms of maybe trying, you know, talk about certain language and talk about something, talk about things in a way that, you know, you know that at least the person you're talking to is going to absorb in the way that it should, that it, it, it's being spoken. And so, yeah, there was a little bit of it that way. I think I was fortunate that he was comfortable with me. He understood why I was focusing on the history I was focusing on, and he might have been more comfortable talking to me uh, in, a, in a certain way if he, you know, that he wouldn't have with a white interviewer. But you'd have to ask them. I don't know. One of the most controversial characters in the O.J. Simpson case is LAPD officer Mark Furman, who found the glove linked to the murders. O.J.'s defense team uncovered tapes of Furman using racist language that was a key part of creating reasonable doubt for the jury. I asked Ezra what it was like interviewing Furman. That was definitely a long process, and he was, you know, would have been, you know, at the top of the list of difficult people to get to sit in the chair, you know, and understandably, because of the way he was portrayed and framed during the trial, and that, you know, he was one of the last people we interviewed. And I really have to give a lot of credit to our producer, Tamara Rosenberg, who was a, you know, a bulldog with everybody. You know, the thing about the project of this scale, as much as I'm used to, you know, being the, you know, the first line when it comes to calling people up and talking to them, you know, I really had to rely on her in many cases to do a lot of the outreach and sort of, you know, and be persistent. 
and she was an, you know, an incredible advocate on our behalf. And she really was the one that through conversations with his agent, um, convinced them and him that this was a, a worthwhile thing to do. Here's Furman speaking to Ezra. In 1989, I was married. I had a house, had a daughter that was born in 91, son that was born in 93. Had this group of friends, unbelievable friends. Every one of them was different than me, though. They all came from intact families, fathers, houses they still go back to, rooms that they still had. But they welcomed me into this group. I thought I had it made. I finally was really happy for the first time in my life. Then I answered a phone. Look, if you believe the caricature of Mark Furman, a guy who supposedly had a copy of Mein Kampf on his mantelpiece during the trial, you know, you're like, well, man, a black Jew, I must be his worst enemy. I don't know how that is supposed to affect what he's seeing, you know, and how he responds. But you, you have to, I just sort of got past that quickly because it doesn't help me. You know, I was just interested in having him respond to the experiences that he lived through during the trial and really give him a fair hearing. And I wasn't there to get wrapped up in, oh, are you really a racist or how racist are you? And man, this must be really weird for you to be sitting across from me because aren't I the you know, living manifestation of everything you're supposed to hate? You know, it's like, yeah, okay. I, I don't, it's like, the, it doesn't get you anywhere. And so as far as how he dealt with me, he engaged with me um, very easily and, and fluidly. And we had a, a good rapport and I appreciate it. And so I have no idea how, who I am, you know, affected how he acted and in, in, in the interview. I, I have zero, I have no idea. Often when an interviewer goes into a situation like that, you've got like a few of your hot button questions in your head and that you've got to kind of work your way around to, to, uh, to ask. And you know, they could be the question that ends the interview or changes the mood of the interview, but they sort of need to be asked. And I wonder if there is any example of that you could describe and how you approach that kind of question. I mean, you arrive at a place where I think any interview you do, even when there's, you know, and I do long interviews and I prepare a lot for the interviews, you know that there's certain people that in the end you're going to have to say, all right, there are these basic questions that I can't forget. And they might even have to be a moment in the movie. You know, I'm going to have to think this out a little bit just so when I get to this point, you know, I have to be clear and direct in how I ask this question. And so whether that is, okay, I'm going to interview, you know, the jurors, I have questions for them that need to be asked, you know, and if it's Yolanda Crawford, who's the young juror at the time, and, you know, it's like I'm listening to her, and she's a very thoughtful person about um, the trial and an incredible, you know, she has an incredible memory of the details. And she, you know, she's someone who, you know, I feel like reached her decision based on weighing and evaluating the evidence and sort of getting a sense of whether the prosecution actually prove their case, which is sort of, you know, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. And so listening to her, it's like, no, you seem to be someone who absorbed the evidence and the information that was given to you as a juror should, and you made your decision. But here's the thing. You were one of these jurors who came to this decision after nine months. You, you came to a conclusion in three and a half hours. And so for me, it's, well, I got to ask you that. 
how the hell after all this time did you come to the decision that quickly? Because that doesn't seem correct in this. It doesn't seem to be the proper amount of time after, you know, for such a big spectacle and, you know, with so many people invested in it to all of a sudden come to a conclusion that quickly. So it's like, that's something I knew. It's like I had to press her and ask her. And in the case of her, she gives she, a great answer. She crushed me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it was like, good for you, you know, and she, and, and by the way, I don't know that she, I have no idea if she showed up at the interview that day and was like, okay, here are the three, you know, she did the opposite and said, okay, I get the two or three things that people, if I'm doing this interview, that the guy's going to sort of want to press me about. So I'm prepared. But whether she had thought about it or not, she gave a great answer. And so I think that's just an example of, you know, a question that, okay, for that interview, I'm going to ask. Um, and it, that happened sort of not with, we interviewed 72 people. I didn't, there weren't 72 examples of that. But there were sort of, you know, half of those, there's probably a question or two that I'm like, okay, this, this, I want to make sure I'm on the record asking this question. Uh, to give you an idea of uh, my casual relationship to this case uh, in, in following it, I remember Marsha Clark. I remember Johnny Cochran. A character I did not remember until I watched your film is Chris Darden, who was the, uh, the black attorney um, on the prosecution side. For people who share my lack of knowledge, can you describe who Chris Darden was? So Chris Darden was a, an African-American attorney who worked for the district attorney's office in Los Angeles who um, came from Richmond, California, which is sort of next to Oakland, um, grew up idolizing the Black Panthers, ended up sort of as a lot of black lawyers in Los Angeles, someone who idolized Johnny Cochran and worked um, for the SID unit here in Los Angeles, which prosecuted pol- uh, police abuse cases. So he's someone who had sort of been on if you, if you want to call this the right side of justice, even with what he had done leading up to the OJ trial. He's someone who had spent a career trying to root out the abuse that had been taking place in the city. And so when you got to the OJ trial, which became polarized so quickly, and you know, when Johnny Cochran becomes, along with Robert Shapiro, the lead attorney for OJ, and Johnny Cochran has you know, this same history of taking on the police and, and, really, and using race uh, as you know, a, a fundamental tool in the cases that he had tried, the, the initial prosecution team was Bill Hodgman, the deputy district attorney, and Marsha Clark, both of whom were white. And there was sort of, they brought Chris Darden onto the case at the end of 1994. And there was a sense, as the trial and the arguments happened itself, and you learn this through the eyes of Yolanda in the, in the, in the film, that when he shows up, it's kind of like, well, why, why all of a sudden is this guy here? And, you know, then it makes you sort of it sort of added a layer to this sort of the racial dynamics of the trial that, oh, we need to you know, cater and, and if not pander to the predominantly black jury by having a black attorney ourselves. And so Chris Darden was thrust into this position of, you know, sort of having people look at him skeptically as a tool or and was framed further by Johnny Cochran um, as, you know, in some, in some corners of Los Angeles as an Uncle Tom because he was the black guy working for the man trying to prosecute the black defendant, even though, you know, in terms of who he was in his past and his history, it, was, it couldn't have been further from the truth. And there's this irony to that that, you know, if you watch it, you can't help but empathize with his plight because in the end, he's just trying to win a case and prosecute a guy he believes is guilty of murder. 
but he sort of really is this uh, manifestation of the, this racial divisiveness that you know arose during the trial. And so he's this incredibly compelling character. But I understand why he didn't want to talk to me because I can understand having lived through that. It's a pretty painful episode um, in his life as I can um, see it. And so he didn't respond to our request to do an interview and he didn't want to participate. And that was frustrating. But nevertheless, he's a good example. He's a part of the story whether he participated or not. Well, he is a, he is a complicated character, and um, it's painful to watch his trajectory in in the story. So I can only imagine how painful it was for him to to live it. Um, although you do feel bad that that his voice isn't in the film. Yes, I, I agree, and you know that's you know so people I and I appreciate you by the way, Tom, that we've gone however long we've gone in this conversation. You haven't asked me about the FX show, so point for you. Um, <laughs> but there there is something that. Uh, you know, that would be, you know, actually a point where, you know, whatever frustration I had with the idea that some, some, you know, Ryan Murphy and the group of people do this huge 10 hour, you know, docudrama dramatization of the trial, you know, what you can do in that form that I couldn't do is really get into this, these interpersonal dynamics and, you know, explore again, who Chris Darden is as a person, you know, in a way that I can't do without him in the film. And potentially can't do anyway because I also am only going so far into the, the the background stories of these individual characters. And so even though I haven't watched the show, but that was one place where I was very envious that they could explore who Chris Darden was as a character in a way that I could. Yeah, well, I also haven't watched the show, so we're on the same page. Two um, points for you. <laughs> um, one final person I want to ask you about in the film, and that is uh, – Mike Gilbert, who was an an agent for O.J. Uh, during this period of his life, um, and uh, and Mike Gilbert says on camera that he thought that O.J. was guilty, and yet he still kept on working for him. A very uh, complex psychology there. What was your experience with Mike Gilbert? Uh, you know, Mike Gilbert is a very complex guy, and I think though he he speaks to you know, in some ways, the power and the cultish aspect of celebrity, you know, in our in our culture, like he's a guy who grew up idolizing OJ. And then he got a chance to become his marketing agent, you know, around 1988 or so, through his uh, relationship with Marcus Allen, who, who he worked and did the same stuff for him. To me, it's like, it really speaks to what happens when you're enthralled by a human being. And sort of you get to this place where, oh, my God, I am now working with and spend all this time around one of my childhood heroes. I can't speak to what that does to a person in terms of how that affects them. And, you know, you are very loyal to that person. And whether you choose then to see him, that person through, you know, rose-colored glasses, or it's just a sense of like, you know, again, with a lot of OJ's friends, some of whom, you know, who don't talk. You know, this is this is a guy who I have known since you know, since he was a kid and I'm loyal to him and that comes first regard. And I don't know what happened or maybe if I did happen, look, Joe Bell, his friend who's in the film, you know, when you ask him what he thinks about whether OJ is guilty or innocent, this is a guy who's known OJ since he was a kid. And, you know, he certainly doesn't want to answer the question, but he sort of says like, look, if he is guilty, then he needs me more than ever. And Joe Bell became an ordained minister at some point. And so that's the way that he deals with that question. So the idea of someone like Mike Gilbert sticking by him even after a point where he he knew him or believed him to be guilty of murder, 
You know, that's an impossible question to answer. In some ways, it's his meal ticket. And so that's his livelihood. And so I don't know what goes through someone's mind about that choice when it comes to say, oh, no, I have to take a stand now and walk away. It's a, a much more difficult choice than you and I could possibly know. You know, but even when someone like Ron Ship, who was in some ways also enthralled by OJ and sort of grew up idolizing him and wanting to be him and ended up being friends with him. Ron Ship was a, a, a cop in the LAPD who befriended OJ, but, you know, was a, and idolized the guy since he was a teenage football player growing up in, in California. Even when Ron Ship comes to the conclusion that OJ is guilty of murder and he makes a decision to testify against him and he's sort of the lone person who you would consider a friend of OJ's who made that decision, even on the stand during the trial on national television, he still says, well, I still love the guy. I want to thank Ezra Edelman for joining us on Pure Nonfiction. You can find his five-part film, O.J. Made in America, on ESPN. On our next episode, I interview Morgan Neville, the Oscar-winning filmmaker behind 20 Feet from Stardom. His new film is The Music of Strangers, about the cellist Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Road Ensemble. In his mid-30s, he has, in a way, what is a midlife crisis. He has this moment where he says, do I even want to be a musician? I know I'm good at it, and I can make a living at it, but is this what I want to do? And as he thinks about it hard for a while, he comes to the realization that I do want to do music if I can do more with music than just music. I also speak with Yo-Yo Ma himself. Every musician faces a choice to either be afraid and then kind of close in ranks and try and just be perfect and not, you know, not mess up, that being your ultimate goal, or to say, forget the messing up part, let's actually go for the truth. Let's go for what you love. Let's go for why you do it, why you love it so much that you're willing to overcome fear in order to make this thing come alive and share it so that it's alive in somebody else. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.